This is Alex Pearson. The fact that circumstances evolved to the point where cabinet reasonably considered it necessary to invoke the act is regrettable. Because in my view, the situation that led to its use could likely have been avoided. As I explained in my report, the response to the Freedom Convoy included a series of policing failures. Yep, it is a political win for the Prime Minister, but an ugly chapter that he should not celebrate. Good morning to you, Alex Pearson, with you on this Tuesday, February 21st. Hope you had yourself a nice long weekend. I gotta be honest, it was great. I didn't do a thing. And uh, it's, I think it's the, only, it's the only thing Dalton McGinty got right when he made this, uh, this family thing, family day, whatever. It might have been a political uh, point getter, but he got a point because it's uh, a good weekend to have off. So I hope you uh, had a bit of a time to check out and just kind of relax. I think a lot of us did that. And so for me, anyway, it's the first chance I get to kick around some big stories because Friday was an enormous, enormous news day. There was so much happening on Friday, and I'll, I'll go through a lot of it including a very big story on China, which should not go ignored. But I'm going to kick around, obviously, the big ruling, which came out Friday. And there is no accident that this thing came out right before a long weekend. But no question also that um, this ruling does hand the Trudeau government a much-needed political win, for the short, short term anyway. And so Trudeau and his team are feeling rather triumphant. But certainly Rouleau's ruling was not a ringing endorsement of their actions, but in politics, a win is a win. You take it, right? And ultimately, how you feel around the whole chapter is going to come down to your politics and your love or hate of those involved. So no one's going to be swayed one way or another. If you hated Trudeau before this, then you still hate him. And if you hated the truckers and their cause, then you feel vindicated. The big loser here remains us. The Canadian people. Because while the spin will be that, you know, the Trudeau government acted within the law, Rouleau made very clear the decision is not legally binding. And he also made clear that while he concludes that he felt that the Trudeau government met the high threshold needed to enact a law, there were a lot of holes. Certainly in the testimony made by Trudeau's MPs that went unchallenged. And so... Rulo made sure to add that this is his opinion and that there are many, many arguments that can be made against the law's use. And those laws will be made in a court of law later this spring. One of the big holes, and I've talked about it before, something um, Rulo did not mention in his final report is the question of where the Trudeau government, specifically David Lametti, the justice minister, got his legal advice that told them that they had met the legal threshold to use the law set out specifically under the CSIS Act. And it's not a question that got answered. But it was during the inquiry, certainly a concern for Rouleau, who noted that without any explanation to this mysterious legal opinion on how Trudeau and his cabinet ministers came to their legal opinion and made their decision, he, he can't actually determine if the Trudeau government had the right to use the law or not. And Rouleau admitted you know, that the government did go outside the specifics of the CSIS Act to use the law, but gave the government the benefit of the doubt with reluctance. A court of law will not do that because it deals with evidence backed by facts. 
So a lot of this stuff will go challenged in a court case. And if you go by the laws on the books right now, it states very specifically that unless the Emergencies Act is rewritten, a national security risk is defined under the CSIS Act, and any action taken must follow that strict mandate, not some outside mysterious legal opinion. And so, yeah, he said he was reluctant to come to the decision, maybe because he realizes that this is before the courts, but also it never should have come to this. Well, like, duh, yeah, we all know that. But yeah, he made uh, very clear that the ugly chapter could have been avoided if police just had done their job, you know, maybe worked together, maybe prepared themselves for what they all knew was coming. You know, he pointed a finger of blame at all levels of government for incompetence, certainly failing to lead, and pointed a finger at Trudeau himself for pouring gasoline on a situation that made things much worse. Following today's report, do you have any regrets about calling Ottawa protesters a fringe minority? Yeah, I wish I had said that differently. Um, I, you know, as I look back on that, and, and you know, as I've reflected on it over over the past months, not just uh, um, freshly from this uh, commissioner's report, I, I wish I had phrased it differently. But you didn't, and you didn't just say it once. You said it in English, and then you said it in French. And you said a lot more than fringe minority. But it's taken over a year for the Prime Minister to at least admit that, of what he denied. Certainly Rouleau said that while most of the uh, powers were used reasonably, he did uh, criticize things like taking vehicle insurance away from people, closing bank accounts. Which to me is the most troubling finding in the report is that uh, Rouleau was kind of okay with the government and the bank shutting down accounts without as much as a warrant or any proof that a crime had been committed at all. I think that's an incredibly dangerous precedent to set because we know that there are other blockades that we've seen. I mean, um, you look at the rail blockades. Would they use that law or any government use this law again for those kinds of protests, because those kinds of protests do hurt Canadian national interests. It's like one of those things, like, you don't worry about the law until it's used again. So yes, the ruling, no question, hands Trudeau another political win in the court of public opinion, but it is going to be, ultimately, a court of law that will determine if the government abuses its power. And that trial takes place later this spring, and we'll talk with someone from one of the um, Canadian Constitution groups. They're very upset about the ruling on this, but again, they're looking to the courts because that will then set the precedent. But certainly lots of blame to go around. Premier Ford did not go unscathed because, of course, uh, he was completely missing in action. Rillo just basically said, you abandoned the people of Ontario, of uh, Ottawa specifically. And um, while Ford was very quick to use his own emergency powers and certainly was very quick to support the prime minister, when it came to governing Ottawa, he just uh, didn't bother to show up. So there was lots of blame to go around in this report. I don't think anyone comes out looking particularly good. But it is where we are as we kick off this new week. So, yeah, we've got a lot of uh, stuff to get through. We will talk about uh, Queen's Park kicking things off with a new session, and I don't think it's going to be smooth sailing for the Premier, no question about it. I think this will be a question that he has asked. 
Um, but we got a very busy show because we will dive into the other big situation, which is the story about China and interference in the 2021 campaign. That is something the prime minister was also asked about Friday, and he has now reordered his talking points on that. He can no longer deny. So now he's like, oh, well, I've been warning for a long time about that. And yeah, no, you haven't. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming, reasonable, and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. There you go. That is Justice Rouleau. And the ultimate decision on whether the Emergency Act was warranted will, in fact, be up to a court of law. And so, yes, absolutely, the report that Justice Rouleau tabled uh, will serve as a political win for the Trudeau government. And they and, and the justice can argue that there was a national security of risk. But Rouleau's decision is not binding, as he himself pointed out. And he was certainly sure to say that others would easily or likely come to a different conclusion. But in his role in this particular inquiry, Rouleau does not have the authority to formally adjudicate the lawfulness of the measure, which will be left up to a judicial review this spring. Christine Van Gein is a litigation director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, one of the many, many groups involved in this uh, long, drawn-out affair, and certainly the work is not done. She joins us now. Thanks for coming on, uh, Christine. Thanks for having me, Alex. It has been a long road, certainly on the political front, and you know how politics work. Uh, the ruling, as far as the Trudeau government is concerned, that had to go their way. It did. So they're probably realizing or thinking, okay, we're good. The more important decision, correct me where I'm wrong, will be the court decision because that then goes on the books and sets the actual precedent, but it will not likely get as much attention. Yeah, I mean, I think that the prime minister, if he popped any champagne over the weekend, he might want to put the cork back in <laughs> because the there is a, a judicial review with some exceptional lawyers happening in April. It's scheduled for April. And as Rouleau said, reasonable people can come to a completely different uh, conclusion. I, in fact, think that the the inquiry report was not particularly reasonable. I think that it was overly and inappropriately deferential to the government. It took uh, as a matter of faith that the government had a reasonable basis for invoking the Emergencies Act, even though uh, this whole thing seemed to turn on a legal opinion that no one has seen other than not even the entire cabinet, just a few yeah. select members of cabinet that included a novel legal interpretation that goes against the actual wording of the statute. So I do not agree with the conclusions reached in this report. And I think that we have a really strong case coming in April. Yeah, to your point, um, there were a couple of things, uh, you know, to your point on this, the CSIS Act, this law in particular is written as such that it's very specific and it is very defined and it is very particular and it's part of the CSIS Act. And Rouleau seemed to go outside of that act and kind of rewrote what it could be instead of what it is. And then on the, you know, the the testimony of uh, Justice Lametti, um, who who did not explain where they got this legal opinion or what the legal opinion was that justified the use. And Rouleau at the time said, this is going to be very hard for me to come to a conclusion of my mandate. So he noted it, and yet it wasn't mentioned 
uh, during the report. And so there are some very big holes in the testimony that I think if we were in a court of law, or I know if we were in a court of law, all of that would have been challenged. I think you would have seen a lot of cross-examination saying, well, how can, you know, where's this outside opinion going? But that didn't happen because that was not the format of this. So there are some, so there are some big key areas that um, would not stand up in a court of law. Yeah, and, and even just on this, the Rouleau rewriting the law, he actually can't do that, right? The, 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 the inquiry report does not have any binding weight. It does not carry any precedent, precedential weight. And in fact, that is the role for the court, the federal court, when they will be the first court to interpret this piece of legislation. This Emergencies Act is exceptional legislation. It has never been used before. It was drafted very, very carefully following the use of the War Measures Act by Justin Trudeau's father, his inappropriate use of the War Measures Act, which was used, in fact, for a much more real, real crisis. The, the October crisis was a real crisis, whereas there is no evidence of any violence, any actual physical violence at these protests. There was no serious property damage, no serious physical harm, and much was made of the things that happened in Coots. But even uh, Coots, we know, was resolved before the Emergencies Act was invoked. So it was it was a lot of there has been a lot of jumping to conclusions, a lot of inferences drawn that I don't think were reasonable in this in this report. And we're really looking forward to clarifying what the law around the Emergencies Act is and what this term threat to the security of Canada actually means. Because our position is that it means what the legislation says it means uh, using the words of the legislation. When you look back at Hansard and see the, the, the government debating what words carefully to include in the act, this is a lot more thought out than a harried cabinet rushing through a decision without full in being fully informed even of this bizarre legal opinion. So looking forward to the court hearing in April. The other very problematic area is the banking um, and certainly the insurance. And, no, you know, Rulo noted, um, that, you know, that it worked. It probably shouldn't have been done. Uh, but, you know, the fact that, you know, you set a precedent on warrantless um, seizures of a bank account with absolutely no evidence um, of, that a crime has been committed. That is not a precedent. Any protester or anybody in this country wants to stand because, it, well, it's it's nuts, frankly. It's a banana republic um, for a government to be able to go in and shut your bank account and seize all your, your stuff without without any grounds. Um, and, and so there's another problematic area. Yeah, I would encourage anyone who is happy about this report and is has you know kind of maybe a partisan mindset and they think that i didn't like the protests and these protests were were awful and i didn't like these people and i disagree with them and i i encourage those people to consider if it was a prime minister who you didn't like and a protest that you supported and it was a disruptive protest, which protests are intended to be. Well, rail, if, rail blockades are disruptive. They cost certainly, our, they, the economy they, billions they of dollars. And, yeah. and, and I believe in the rule of law. I don't support illegal protests. And I do think that the Ottawa protests needed to be 
ended. It, it had gone on too long and, and it had become illegal. But if you support the decision to use the Emergencies Act in this case and the freezing of bank accounts for, peace, for peaceful protesters in this case, how would you feel if a prime minister you didn't like did it to a protest that you supported politically? And, and that's the way that we should be looking at this in a clear-eyed way, um, not, a part, not through a partisan lens. So I encourage everyone to try and think about it that way. Yeah, it's very difficult in these uh, very polarizing times. Having said that, uh, Christine, how will this uh, particular judicial review work? Will this be uh, where we get a number of witnesses that we saw in um, Ottawa called back? Will the MPs be called? How how is this one going to unfold? Well, I mean, I have to say that the cross-examination on the stand of the sitting prime minister is is pretty spectacular, and we're not going to be seeing that again yeah. But uh, it, at the federal uh, court. But a lot of the evidence that was included in the inquiry has been um, is going to be available for use in in the in the federal court judicial review. So we do have access to to a lot of that information and. My hope is that where there are gaps in the record, for example, the government refusing to provide information like about that legal opinion, that an adverse inference will be drawn instead of an inference that the government was right. We need to be critical of the government refusing to provide us with a basis for invoking the act instead of just deferring to their uh, to, to just trust, just trust yeah. me. Yeah, well, it's doubt. I mean, there's there's your doubt. <laughs> and that is, I think, the difference is that there was absolutely no pushing on, on evidence and, you know, um, pushback on any of it. It was just accepted as as what it was and um, it became truth. That will not be the case in, um, in this next chapter. Well, nonetheless, uh, there is another side to this story. We'll continue following it. Christine, very much appreciate you clarifying. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Christine Van Gein joining us, one of the many constitutional groups that will be uh, continuing this fight. And again, it matters. As she said, today it's the protest you hate, tomorrow it could be the one you love. How would you like Pierre Polyevra shutting your bank accounts? I wouldn't be okay with that. I don't think a lot of other people should be either. So it's, uh, it is a very slippery slope that we keep finding ourselves on. I'm certain it's the same person. Um, so Kayla left on Tuesday afternoon and went shopping. Uh, she emerged from her shopping trip with a bag from the body shop and some Barnsdale Farms branded dog treats. She then went home for half an hour and emerged from her apartment complex where I know she lives in her car. And when she got out of the car, not knowing that we were following her, she had the same bag from the body shop and the same Barnsdale Farm dog treats. That is the voice of New York Post reporter who talked to Greg Brady this morning explaining how they managed to stake out the home of this Oakville shop teacher named Kayla Lemieux and get pictures of the teacher without makeup, the women's clothing, and these massive breasts that have made Lemieux a worldwide headline. Lemieux, as you heard in the interview, denies that the picture is of her, which, if true, then she's got an exact twin. But she tells the son's Joe Warmington, apparently, that... um, she has a condition known as gigantomastia and added she's not transgender but was born intersex and that her breasts are real and we are just going to have to take her word for it, noting that it is even offensive to ask. Rishi Banu is a labor lawyer who was hired to help the parents out of kids who go to the school where this teacher teaches and is now a parent helping out. Thanks so much for joining us, Rishi. My pleasure. 
What's your reaction to seeing, um, you know, the pictures in the New York Post? I mean, the reporter is adamant that this is the exact same picture, same person, and sat down with Kayla to have this conversation. So what's your reaction to what you're seeing? Uh, well, obviously, it's it, it's shocking, and it's something that the board needs to to take into account. I, I think, from my perspective, what what I find surprising is that is that we're having to deal with this as a as a community, and m- more than that, we've got newspapers coming from the United States having to investigate this. Uh, the the board should have been able to do to do all of this and and, and assess this. Well, you would think, but, you know, I guess in this climate, uh, they'll only ask the questions that um, they have to ask, and they haven't asked clearly enough of these questions, um, because now we're just supposed to take the word of this person. Um, and, and I'm not sure uh, that that's enough at this point, frankly. I mean, this has been going on for months. We've had several bomb scares at this school. It has caused an enormous amount of volatility. Um, and again, this notion that we're just supposed to take the teacher's word for it, is that enough? No, I, I don't think so. And look, f- fundamentally, I, I, I think it is a bit of a sideshow at the end because on the one hand, look, we, we know that these, these breasts are, are not real. They, they are prosthetics. They, 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 they have to be. Um, and it's, it's just not appropriate. It's, it's drag wear. It's fetish wear. And even if this person is transgendered, uh, it's not a, it's not appropriate to wear that in the classroom. On the other hand, if if this teacher is saying that she's not transgendered, that she's in fact female, she's then a cisgendered female expressing herself in a certain way. And the concept of gender expression, as I understand it from the Human Rights Tribunal case law, uh, is that it's not intended to protect cisgendered females or males wanting to express themselves in a certain way. So, so none of this is, is covered by human rights law from my perspective. Well, I think this comes down, and I think most of us will, will admit, this is an issue of common sense, like basic common sense for anybody working around kids that you have to be professional. Um, and, and yet here we are six, seven months later, and we're still talking about the same issue. Where does it go from here, then, in your mind? I mean, the school board has decided to review dress code issues. You know, they're, they're dragging their feet on this, trying to come up with a way to make sure that this teacher can do what they're going to do and that the kids are protected to, to some degree. But at this point, you know, standing back and looking from the outside in, the kids haven't been protected at all. And, and I feel like a lot of the parents have been put in an impossible situation, uh, even the teacher. I mean, they could have just solved this uh, by saying, you know, wear an appropriate uh, attire. And yet none of that's happened. And so, you know, wh- where does this fight go from here in your mind? It's a, it's a good question. And I think I think the resolution either has to come uh, from the political level or or from the judicial level. Um, and so Minister Lecce needs to step in and, and, and do something with this in accordance with his powers. I'm not quite sure what that is. Uh, but, you know, he, he very clearly expressed his ire at this in, in December. He directed them to do something. They haven't done anything. And, and it appears that they have no intention to do anything with this. So um, I, I think the question is going to be for him in terms of, of what he's going to do with the situation. Um, alternatively, there needs to be some sort of pronouncement from 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 the court as to as to what uh, the rights are of the children, what the rights are of the parents, and what uh, what the obligations are of the school board.
Does it really have to go into a courtroom? I, j- I find it odd, you know, that, that we have to drag this through the courts, which will grant a decision that we all know the outcome of. And yet you look at this last year, um, in the last few months of, of teaching in the school year for these kids, they've already lost an enormous amount of schooling with the pandemic. And now I'm trying to figure out how much schooling they have lost due to the disruptions of all these bomb scares and, and just being in the headlines every day. I 100% agree with you. It's it's infuriating and it's frustrating, uh, but the board doesn't listen to the parents. They, um, they've repeatedly said that they're not going to listen to school councils, which is the voice of the parents, on HR-related matters, even though this involves their children. Um, we've written them letters. We've shown up to their board meetings, and, and they, they continue to just dig in uh, and, and not budge at all. So, it's it's frustrating, but but I can tell you that you know the, the parents aren't going to go away, and they're they're going to they're going to continue to to voice these concerns, and they're going to continue to push every button and lever that they have. Well, I think the difficulty here, from my perspective, sorry, Alex, is I I just don't think that this board is is getting human rights. They they say things like human rights has primacy, um, and so that takes precedence over over everything, but that's that's not really correct. Uh, we have to adapt to human rights, but it's not that it takes primacy over everything. I would have to think that these parents have read this New York Post article uh, and seen the pictures. And at some point, you have to wonder, are we being punked? Yeah, I think it's a valid question, too. I, I do. I, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, right? I mean, the speculation is, is you know, this person is, is, is trolling um, or alternatively, they're, they're mentally ill. I don't know, but it's very clear that they're they're, you know, not telling the truth, whether they believe it or not. It's just not it's not true what they're saying. Is there recourse, Rishi, for the parents or for the kids? I mean, um, you know, if they have lost a lot of education or if they have had basically their year of school completely trampled all over. I mean, is there any recourse here other than, you know, heads should roll at the board level? Um, I, I believe something's going to happen, Alex. I, I don't know what that is. I'm not quite sure when. I'm not sure when that tipping point happens. But but I, I believe that common sense and the law is going to prevail in this. It's going to happen. Uh, from a school council perspective, uh, a lot of changes need to happen uh, on that. Uh, we need to realize that school councils are the voice of the parents, um, and and they haven't been properly constituted up until now. But I think that that's going to change going forward. So, you know, at the very least in September, we're going to have a strong, effective school council that's going to be voicing these concerns through official, formal legal channels. Uh, and, and things are going to change. Like, I do think I, I do think things have changed uh, since September um, incrementally, not fast enough, but things are happening. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. But I do believe that this is going to result in, in some positive change for our children. Let's hope so. Rishi, very much appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate coming on.